How have you been? It's been a while. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, summer. I've been, be I've been fine. <laughs> You've been fine? I'm sure you have. It looked like you had a, a wonderful camping trip. Yes. Are you doing the dishes? Uh, Ashley's just putting something away there. She's just going to go and read for a bit. Aww. Did you make supper? Um, I was kind of, I was out earlier and I just went and I was out with, I have this thing I do once in a while with a friend of mine where I go and play squash with them and then we go to a bar and drink and eat bad food afterwards to negate any of the positive influences <laughs> of the exercise. <laughs> so I was out at a, there's a new place here in London called the Toboggan Brewery that's like a brew pub that's actually quite good. That's, do you remember Joe Cool's, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right beside that. It used to be called Jim Bob Ray's. Oh yes, it's I know same, that. It's the same place. owner, right? It's Mike Smith. It's the same guy, but it's it's, it's really nice in there, and uh, they have good pizza. So I had pizza. I had a half a pizza and a couple of beers. So I'm okay for now. Did you guys eat? It's guess it's seven. It's almost eight. Yeah, of course you ate. Yeah, I was just sitting out back, and I was like zoning out totally. And then I thought, hey, I have something to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> electrified patio. <laughs> you're like your electrified gazebo. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, my God, we haven't talked in three weeks. I was gonna say it's been. Th- I wasn't sure if it was three or even four. Yeah, it's like three weeks. Yeah, the summer's tough. I, I we can talk about it later, but I know that I'm. I think in two. I think next next week I'll be here, but the following I won't. So okay. we'll do whatever we can. Yeah. Um. So um. That's a pretty cool thing you did. Um. With friends playing squash and then having beers. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I say, negate all the exercise, all the positive benefits of it. But it's fun. It's nice to get out. Hmm. I, um, it's been actually, that's been tough for us to get together as well because our, our schedule is not working out. So it's been a few weeks and it's harder if you don't do it every more regularly, it's harder on your system. So after about 30 minutes of that, I can barely move. <laughs> yeah, very, I'm, I'm working out a lot and, uh, I like find that if I don't spend, like if I don't do anything, like usually I don't do anything for three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I, I refuse to do any working out. But then the Monday, it's... The Monday actually is pretty good. It's the Tuesday that's tough so after that. Bit, you're a little bit sore from it, probably. Maybe. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Well, our topic for today is the corporate world... Uh, or the the way that art is valued. I, I was uh, thinking you could yeah. almost even call it like the art business, just the business of art. You know, like the not the art making, but where where it gets brought into the world, right? Hmm. Yes. So um, there seems to be uh, some categories in there that. Uh, I, I would call them the untouchables. <laughs> there seem to be people that just kind of reach a point. Uh, they're almost saints or prophets or, you know, um, 
They're they're untouchable. You, you, they're yeah. stellar. You cannot reach them. And we're talking here about both alive and dead artists. Too. Once you're dead, that becomes a little more understandable in a way because there's just never going to be any more. And, and uh, you know, but but there's also artists that are alive that have have similar sorts of stature. I would say. Who's the guy who did the giant shark? Oh yeah, was that Coons or not Coons? He's another good example. Though. He's um, a British British guy, I think. Yeah, I'm thinking. I keep thinking Julian Schnabel, but it's not him. My goodness. But yeah, you know, you know, I mean, that guy is uh, he's somebody who's and and Coons, since we know his name, he's another one. You know, he he makes these mega you know pieces that sell for incredible amount of money and I, I guess largely with corporate art we're talking about the way that it gets its value so escalated to something that becomes completely out of it's, it's not even something you can even think about no it's millions and um, it by that time it has reached um, some level of uh, the collectors that are collecting this work are, you know, Qatar's, uh, Qatar uh, princes or... Yeah, we're talking know. like tens of millions of dollars and sometimes even hundreds for certain things. Not, not, uh, Damien Hirst, that's who we were thinking of, it just came to me, sorry, Oh, yes, that's it. And... and and then his pieces would sell for a lot. And a lot of that would be like in the Saatchi collection is another one that's got a lot of somebody with a lot of money that is, has picked up a lot of pieces over the years. And to be fair, a lot of these people probably don't always buy things that are that expensive, but they've been buying and selling and trading and collecting art for many, many years, some of them, and uh, have made some probably pretty smart decisions in their life in terms of investing in something that they can see there's going to be more of a demand on. I'm talking more with like contemporary art. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, I was trying to uh, wrap my head around all of this. And I, I seem to, I think that the collector is the most important person in, in val giving a value to art because Art is not like any other commodity. It's not like a painting it doesn't equal another painting or another painting, you know. It's uh it's all relative. The yeah. the price of things like you can't just weigh it and think okay, well, we're going to do it by weight or you know, it's it's all relative to the value that is given to it by a collector. I believe the collector is at the center of, of this. And then somewhere in there, you have to consider the role of the kind of the peddler, the dealer, the art pimp, mm -hmm. you know, the person who's in a way, I don't know that they're elevating the value because like you say, it's the collector that ultimately has this incredible amount of money and says, I am going to pay like tens of millions of dollars for a Picasso or for a, you know, a Surratt or for whatever, like, you know, but those are, you know, these are old important artists that you want to own this piece of history. But in a way, to me, it seems that those pieces should probably not be in private collections and should be in museums so that we can see them. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a little bit difficult to think 
Um, what does the collector have in terms of knowledge about art? So is the collector just buying because this is the because his his agent or his dealer is saying this is the newest thing or is the collector buying because she or he um, really truly loves this um, and I believe that collectors who buy art um, and, and who love they love that art that art they buy art that they love it gives even more value to to the pieces I think well, so I remember talking to uh, back um, when I was a little bit more active and going I used to go to a lot of art openings here in London regularly and I you know got to know some of there's only really two uh, art dealers here in London there's uh, Jens Gibson and Michael um, Mike, no, Jens Thielsen and Michael Gibson, right? And I went to a lot of the things that went on at the Thielsen Gallery, and he's somebody who's, he's grown up with it. His dad was an art dealer and started the business, and he has um, been, he, he's, he's a collector. But he is somebody who very well much knows art, and I, I got into a similar conversation with him about this many years ago, and and because he sees this all the time with the, with people that are, are trying to start collecting art, and he said what happens is, his suggestion to anybody is buy what you love. Don't buy something as an investment. You're not buying it as an investment. You're buying it because you love it. And then as you, as you buy more and more art, your tastes will change. Mm-hmm. And so as the thing that you bought, maybe some Ken Danby painting, well, that would be too expensive, but you know, something that, that you might, as you, your taste, your, your tastes have um, matured, you might look at some of the things that you bought when you were first starting out and go, I'm not sure I like that so much, but it might still have value. And then a lot of times people sell those pieces. And so it's kind of a fluid process where they're buying and selling. Now this is with pieces that are probably, you know, 1000 or even $500 up to like 10,000 or maybe $20,000. I'm not sure how that works. If you're buying something, if you're buying, trying to buy a Picasso, maybe you're just buying that strictly as an investment. I don't know, but, but on the, on the lower level, I think people, Mostly are probably buying, most serious collectors are buying art because they love it and not strictly as a financial decision. But mm -hmm. I'm sure you get both. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's got to be both because, um, uh, you know, how, how, how <laughs> could some of these pieces have, have sold, in, you know, in the first place? Yeah. The congealed well, again, head of, a congealed a head made of congealed blood, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a shark in a tank of formaldehyde. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A million dollars or more. <laughs> so yeah, well, that's the, you know we're talking about different things here too, though. Like I don't have any sort of real connection to that. I mean, I like that. I like that stuff as artwork. I, to me, I think that stuff is meant to be in a public gallery and not necessarily in a private collection whatever but i'm talking more about people who are buying art that you can you can fathom the price of right like even a twenty thousand dollar painting i can fathom the price of that i mean i'm not in a position where i could buy a twenty thousand dollar painting but i can fathom that whereas i i can't fathom buying a picasso or buying a damien hurst or you know those are just those things are just up there in value to a point that they don't even make sense to me yeah yeah exactly so i think there are levels and um in in my town, um, what gets sold as um, really 
um, like as usual, uh, usual piece is around, let's say, well, a good piece between 800 to a thousand. You know, that's yeah. that's what most people uh, who have had a job all their life and they've retired and now they have they want to have a painting a good painting that they love that's how much they will pay and my guess is those people are doing exactly what you just said and they're buying a painting that they love they're not buying that painting because they think that spending eight hundred dollars is going to somehow in the future make them ten thousand dollars right? that's right that's right so this is what's pretty much around me uh right now um when it, when when I make art, I don't really think of its monetary value ever. Um, of course, I'm still going to school, um, but at one point I will have to think about it, and I, I will have to 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 try to enter this market. Um, and you know, it's going to be tough because it's I don't want to put dollars with something that they're their babies they're my babies really because I spend time with them and they mean a lot to me so it's really difficult to do that well my experience in that regard is that uh, young artists and young perhaps meaning more that they haven't been doing it that long rather than that they're they're 18 mm -hmm. uh, tend to underprice their work. Mm -hmm. They tend to not put enough value on it because they don't imagine that anybody would want to spend like $200 on a painting, so they sell it for 100 and it's like, come on. Like, I think anything that you've put that much time and effort into, even if it's not that big, well, maybe not tiny. I'm talking like, uh, I don't know, like say an 18-inch by 24-inch painting, like something that size that you put a bit of time in should probably not sell for less than four or $500, no matter who you are. <laughs> That's my opinion. And if nobody wants to buy it for that, then too bad, right? Yeah. That's You're cute. That's uh. what I say. That's what I say. And as a result, I didn't sell very many paintings. I mean, probably priced too high. But I did sell some. Yes. And uh, I just thought, and I have a lot left that I didn't sell. <laughs> They're all in the basement. I don't have them on my walls. But I, I, I really need to, to get on that. But I guess what, I'm, what, I, what I find more, what I find really consistently are, are people that, that are trying to somehow make a living at it. And I think it's hard because it's hard to get someone to notice you on the dealer level that matters. And then they try to do things like the one of a kind shows or, you know, these outdoor craft shows. And it's like, those are generally, in my experience, attended by old people with their wallets welded shut. <laughs> you know, like they're there for an outing more than for buying anything. And even if it's only $50, they're not going to probably part with That's it. true. That's totally so in true. a way, if it's, they're not going to spend 50 on it, you might as well be crazy and say it's like $2,000, right? And say, you know what, I'm important. Maybe you'll get somebody who'll, you'll fool them. <laughs> <laughs> and there might be a certain truth to that as, as some of the way that the pricing goes. I don't really know, but... but yeah, uh, I don't know either. What I'm thinking is, um, uh, for now, I just, if somebody really loves my painting that I've that that I just made I just give it to them for now and eventually you know I'll change that but well what you can do on that regard too uh, is you can even give it to them with the understanding that 
you have to store it somewhere and you'd rather have it on walls and people seeing it and it still belongs to you but it's on loan kind of indefinitely to them and maybe someday they'll want to buy it from you because they'll decide that they like it in your house. I know a lot of artists that work that way. Oh, yeah? Well, yeah I didn't yeah. even know about that. Yeah, my Brian will sign. He signs art, art up in all kinds of people's houses and he has like a contract that he signs with them and everything. Oh, that is cool. That's so, a good idea. So that's idea. one way of doing it. And this is somebody who... Um, who really has kind of made his, his living at being an artist. And in a way, you're in a fortunate position in that you're not going to be, like, it's not going to be like you're getting kicked out of your house if you don't sell your paintings, right? No. So <laughs> in your position, I would be inclined to, especially if you if they have a lot of personal value to you, I would probably price them higher rather than lower and just say, you know what, this is what it's worth to me. And it took me a lot of my own heartfelt energy and time and materials, and this is some, this is a part of me, and I'm not going to give it away, right? Mm. Mm. But that might mean that you sell like ten paintings in the rest of your life. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my my um, goal. I was just talking about it today. I went out uh, painting with my friend Katie, who doing some plein air. Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. She's um, she's going to the. A fine arts program, uh, masters in fine arts at um, University of Windsor. She's going this summer to find a place to stay, and that's she's gonna start her her masters. And um, she she was asking me, so what what's your plan for the future? You don't really want to do galleries and shows and stuff like that, right? I said, well. <laughs> For now, um, my my thinking is I want to live this life, you know, this is a good life, painting and um, reading about art and visiting galleries, having friends a little bit everywhere, um, engaging people with art is really a good way to live, really. It's pretty exciting, actually. Yeah, you know, and, like you just, like music. I know you you love music, and I it's it's also a good way to live if if you don't go and do drugs and drink <laughs> and and uh, tour a lot of, for. A lot of visual artists had that problem too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. So um, the whole. Uh, the the whole artist uh, world uh, can be can be tough if um, if you have a, an addictive personality but if you're kind of well grounded um, it can be a very healthy way to live as well I agree but an interesting angle on that too is that so sometimes the people that are the most tortured and the most addictive personality that make the best art and I'm not saying that has to be the truth it sounds like a cliche really but but it you get people that have these like like somebody like Jackson Pollock I don't know that he was really was he an addict I don't really know that much about him but he was certainly had some mental issues like people that have these sort of issues and they're sort of using their visual art to work it out kind of thing and and I guess I see addiction as I guess just another another uh, thing in the sort of mental mental health spectrum right yeah, well, um, artists are often a little, a little skewed, a little different, a little. They, they, you know, they, they, they're shy 
um, and quiet, and at the same time, they can say the most outrageous things, you know. So um, it does kind of attract people that see things differently. And yeah, I, there are some people who have had um, um, a lot of uh, issues and whether it's the best art or not, I, That's, you yeah, know, um, some people really love Pollock and they will talk about Pollock, you know, forever. My professors love Pollock. Um, you know, I, I, I'm fine with Pollock. I'm sure that, you know, um, it's, it's, it looks like great art, but you know, there's other art that I like too, and the people aren't crazy. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Monet, who was pretty stable. He had a long life, Claude Monet. Um, and, uh, yeah, he might have had troubles just like everybody else. I think at one point yeah. he wanted to commit suicide. Um, who <laughs> I, I've thought of suicide a couple of times yeah, but in passing, but, you know, not not really, but well, I know you're not, you know, I, know I, I get what you're saying. It's it's I get what you're saying, and, and maybe to take a step back, um, I think what, what the people that make the art that art to me that are it's are people that are just really like obsessively driven about it, and people that are obsessively driven about art tend to also be the sort of people that could very easily be obsessively driven about being an addict. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 that's, yeah. So maybe there are a good channel to get people away from, from that, right, in some cases. But definitely, uh, you have to have kind of a... The artists that I've appreciated are people that, that they, they... Everything that they do is about their art. You know, they... they they almost like it's hard to to have to have a real balanced life as an artist. I think like if you really want to make a difference and get people to notice you, it's it's difficult to like you've got your family life and maybe you might have to have a day job and be an artist. It's like it's really hard to balance that. I'm not I saying agree. it's possible, but I agree. Yes, um, I read um, an article about professional artists and how they spend all their time uh, working on this project, that project, that piece, whatever. Yes, yes, I get it, okay? Like, you know, but I think that it's also possible to make good art and have a very, uh, let's say, normal life yeah. with the family and uh, to include it in your in your lifestyle, you know? It's, it's I think it's yeah, okay. feasible. Yeah, the important thing is to have um, enthusiasm about the art and to be somewhat, you don't have to be obsessive, really, because you're going to, you can't do that. I think that's where it gets difficult, like to manage all of the things that you have to do. But to be able to have enough of, a, of an obsession with the art that you're really going to push yourself to do the best you can do, given whatever your own circumstances are, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see, I see some people that are um, really um, good at uh, managing all the sides of all the facets and all the, the different aspects of their lives with their families and, and art, with their artwork as well. Um, so I know it's possible to do that. 
Uh, are you going to be living off your art? No, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, who knows? Maybe at one point in your life when you, you get older uh, and you don't have as many uh, responsibilities, fam family responsibilities, and as you've built, let's say you've been at it for 10 years, that seems to be sort of a pattern if if you've if you've worked at it for the past 10 years or so and you've done some shows then you start getting a little bit of um uh momentum i guess i i've i've been reading um artists um um cvs and um what their path has been and it seems like after 10-15 years uh, they start getting more and more noticed and maybe they go to the Venice Biennale or uh, they, they seem to, to, to push through and uh, um, you know by keeping at it I guess and being lucky I'm sure that it, it all uh, comes into play but uh, I think it's possible to uh, to not live off it, but at least um, be comfortable with what you're doing. And uh, just what what I want to do is eventually make enough money so I can pay for my material. That's all I need. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair enough, though, honestly. And I think what you want is for other people to see it, and you want to have feedback on it, and you want like there's so much more to it than just making money at it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and, and obviously some people, that's what they have to do because that's what they've decided they've committed their life to do. You're not in that exact position. You're in a pretty lucky position to be able to explore this as something later in life and to really unfold it and not have the, you know, the say, if I don't sell paintings, I'm going to get kicked out of my house, like I said mm -hmm. earlier. It's not about that. So I, I think that's awesome. And uh, I, I, right from the beginning of seeing things that you were posting on Facebook, I was really... I, I like the enthusiasm. I like that you're—you seem to be not afraid to to do it. You know, to and, and making mistakes is all part of it, right? Like you just want to keep making it and making it and making it, and that's how you become better at it. And you, you challenge yourself continually, and you're not really thinking about. I wonder when they're going to pay me ten million dollars right? <laughs> to get back to the corporate. Life. Oh God, no! Uh, yeah. I think. This is pretty much, I don't know, is it over? Is it a period that's over? I'm not sure. The period of, of extravagant art purchases? Yeah, the period of um, the artist as the icon, you know? Yeah, it's hard to say, you know, because this is the thing that I was thinking about when we were, when you, I, I being old and forgetful, I forgot that we were talking about corporate art, and you'd mentioned that earlier today when I was messaging you. And I and I, I'm thinking, like it's it's like there's almost there's no in between. It's like you're either somebody who's like making almost nothing off their off their art, or you're somebody who's making like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year off their art. It's it seems to me it's hard, and that's not true. I mean, there are people that are in between there, but boy, it's just such a strange kind of business. Yeah. And what is it that people are striving for, right? Like, I don't know. I guess it's it's true with anything, like, as whatever it is that you do. Do you want to be making a million dollars a year at it? I suppose you might. But with that comes a lot of pressure and responsibility. And I, 
uh, with art, I don't know if it'd be the same. I don't know. If someone wants to pay me a million dollars a year for my paintings, I suppose <laughs> I can make it. I think it's it's about then. I mean, I'm looking at my my professors, and they're my good examples. They're they're my models, and um, I see them uh, making their their pieces. And my my uh, professor Noni is right now. She's working uh, very happily with her sister. Her sister makes amazing paintings as well, and both of them are so happy <laughs> painting together. That's cool. And their paintings are so beautiful. Um, I'm just so... Uh, I get so uh, alive when I think about people doing stuff like that. Just Yeah, that's interesting. You're going to miss not being in school when you do finish because you get that stimulation from, from these people that you say that you're kind of guiding you through this process. And I think that, it, you know, you want to make sure to maintain as many connections with them as you can, if possible. Well, if they're in, I guess if they're in, it's the same reason, not that big, right? There's not that mm. many arts, so I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll remain connected to them. Well, you know, um, I think that as I go along, I know that, and you're totally right, and I'm keeping an eye on this, is uh, the summers are pretty tough usually because we're not in school. But I've started doing painting wherever I go now. So I'll bring my stuff and I'll paint, I'll do a painting. Uh, if I'm camping or if I went to Quebec City, I, I did a painting of in Cap Rouge. Um, I did a painting in my mother's backyard. And I just did a painting this afternoon. So um, as I keep going like this, wherever I am, I find a place to paint or to draw. What medium are you working in for doing these? Like um, sorry, my son has decided to jump really, really uh, heavily on top of my head right now. That's so, not the spot to do that. Uh, we're going to hear boom, boom, boom. Um, I'm using acrylic, um, and oil. Um, I didn't use oil today, but when I'm in a controlled environment, I use acrylic and oil together. I like for doing like for a camping trip, for example, when I was, I, I, I like watercolor for, for the portability of it. And the, I mean, I was never very, I wouldn't say very good at it, but I, I liked it cause it still allowed me to express myself. Hmm. You know what? Um, I didn't buy a lot of, uh, you know, those tubes of watercolor. I have the the little cakes in the in the pan, but they're not as good. So you, yeah, you're making Although, me if think. If you buy the good ones, they're good. It's just I think you have to buy like the Windsor Newton high end, not non student ones. I think they're still pretty good. But yeah, I, I prefer the tube paint. Yeah, the two paints. But that's harder thing. to work with. Again, if you're if you're like out in a campsite, it's nice to have one of those sets where everything is all your colors are right there. But yeah, you have to make sure you you didn't buy the set that cost twenty bucks, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one I have. I have the yeah, one yeah, that yeah, costs twenty bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to buy a Windsor Newton set with only you know the ones that would probably be like a hundred dollars for a set. But you get like so much more pigment, and you probably get more paintings out of it than you would out of the twenty dollars set because there's actually a lot of pigment, less carrier, and the paints. 
But whatever. I mean, watercolor is a tough medium, and it's not for everybody. It wasn't really for me. I just liked the fact that it was easy. To me, the idea of painting with acrylic and oil paints outside and doing that, I would uh, that would be just too much too difficult for me to. <laughs> I forgot to bring paintbrushes at camping, so I started using little bits of wood from the ground. <laughs> Like a palette knife paint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I tried that, and it was okay. I guess I did okay with that. It, it gave the painting a, a kind of energy that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So it was interesting. Well, I remember one of the things somebody told me real early on was that you, you can't be reliant on your materials. Like if you have a roll of newspaper and a piece of charred stick you should be able to make a piece of art right yeah that sounds right mm -hmm. so so i i think that and that's that that's the kind of thing that i think i people should be that are trying to become better artists should really be challenging themselves with because a lot of people they get and musicians are a real bad form where it's like everything's got to be like just perfect just so and and it's like okay that's not to me that's not what art's about like art to me is about being able to express yourself and you just use what is at hand after that. I know that that's maybe not going to be your best work, but but that's going to make you eventually make your best work, I believe. Mm, yeah. Well, with me, it's totally practice, practice, practice. Yeah, practice. that's all part of it, right? It's just drawing. Just a pencil and paper is important. Like, did, you must have done some figure drawing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, have see, you? I thought that was, have like, you? the best thing that... I, yeah, I, I used to go to... We had a, some drop-in sessions here in London, and I did... I did it for a couple of years, like on a real regular basis, and I've got a whole bunch of bad ones. But uh, I've got a few good ones. The good ones are usually the ones that were the five-minute ones. Mm -hmm. If I had too long, I ruined it, and if I had too short, I couldn't capture it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is a kind of five but, minutes to do a figure drawing is well, actually a long, a long yeah, it time. Would be, it would be a capture of the fake at that at that short but well, we used to do one minute two minute and five minute ten minute fifteen minute we used to do all different times even one minute right like but it's just like you're just scrawling down and getting the basic form down but i think that's important yeah yeah totally it's it gets you warmed up and it, it makes you think about just uh the form and to to react to what's in front of you instead of trying to capture every detail just yeah, uh, and, go yeah. And I think it's important to, in a way, to challenge your own expectations of what you're what you're trying to come up with. And and I think there's a lot of beauty in very simple gestural drawings. Mm, yes. Yeah. And then and then when you're Damien Hurst, you can sell them for for thousands <laughs> of dollars each, probably. I don't know. I don't know. Well, in any case, the 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 art business is a strange one, and. Artists are, are, in my experience, a lot of them don't really want anything to do with the business end of it. It doesn't sound good, does it? The business end. <laughs> yeah, the ass I, end of art. But, I'm just wondering how this whole machine uh, works, you know. Um, how does it happen? When do you start becoming hot or... You know, a good committed commodity. What is it? Is it the person that you met? Is it the theme? Your theme? What is it? You know, I think there's a... To me, there's 
Well, one thing is that you're making something that people are actually interested in. That's always important. But the second thing, and I think the really important thing, is that people are actually uh, they they're convinced that you are committed in this, to this for the long haul. You're going to still be doing this in 20 years, and you're not somebody who's just like flakily decided to take an art program, and then as soon as you graduate, you're just going to go back to not making <laughs> art. Flakily, I like that. You know what I mean? Well, that's true, though. That's true. I mean, I stopped, right? So the people, like, I had one guy, I sold one large painting to a guy for, like, 1700 bucks. Ha ha. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It was a nice painting, and, and unfortunately, my life, it was just the way my life worked out that I didn't really have a great place to, to do it, and I started at that time making music, and so that became Mark. an easier focus than making visual art, and now I just I'm watched I'm really, music. really... <laughs> <laughs> I really, really like your paintings. I know, I should You make should continue. Let's see. Maybe I've got a base, a basement renovation in the works, and there's a part of the space in the back that maybe I could turn into a studio. Because I would like to do it again. But I, you know what? I, I I was finding by the end, and maybe this comes back to what I was talking about earlier about saying that they were worth more than they probably were. I ended up accumulating a lot of them, and canvas is tough on that, right? And I like painting on canvas the best. So I, when I was at the, even at the end of still making art I, at the house I was in at the time, I started just doing watercolor. Nothing but watercolor because it's super easy to store. Mm -hmm. Canvas is, is brutal to store. Like, I've got some fairly large canvases, and I, I didn't make that many of them because eventually, you know, I didn't, I, I sold one large one, and I don't think any others ended up anywhere other than on my own walls. I totally can understand that. However, you can undo them and roll them up. Yeah, no, I've got that. I did that too. They don't really like that so much. They're better to keep them stretched. But whatever. I mean, the thing about that that's nice too is then you can reuse the stretcher bars, right? And put yeah. a new canvas on it and paint it. And I used to actually, I got to the point, one of my strategies too is I used to just staple the canvas right to the drywall and just paint right on the wall and then roll it up. And never, it never even got stretched properly in a lot of them. <laughs> I just worked and worked and worked. Yeah, I was, it was, I liked it. I should get back into it. It was fun. But the music was easier because I started on a computer. And it's, nobody cared about that either, but that's another story. <laughs> Aww. But in any case, uh, no, I, I, I didn't care that nobody cared. I didn't mean it that way. I, I, uh, I, I, to me, like yourself, I'm in a position where I've got, some other stuff that I do, I've got income and I, 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 I don't run, I would never rely on, I, to me, it's like important to have a creative outlet of some sort. Mm. And I say that as I don't have so much of one in the last while, just again, I, it's easy to get out of the, out of good habits. And I guess good habits are the most important thing that you can have when it comes to making well, art of any form, right? You, you're still pretty plugged in to, to I art. I pay attention, but I, but I never, I, I feel like a bit of a, I don't know, a satellite around it or something. I'm not, I don't really feel that connected to it like I was before. Oh, you got to feel it. You got to feel it. And when, when you feel it, it, you'll do it. It's like me and my jogging. I decided to start doing work workouts and jog and stuff. Just one day I got up and I said, that's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's it. I'm starting, you know, to work out today. And I did it. And I didn't stop since then. I just decided it. 
it's the same with fine arts. I just decided it and I thought, okay, well, I'm doing it now. When, when I think about the whole corporatization of art and all of the the costs of, of you know, the important contemporary works plus costs of of the blue chip dead guys, mm. gals. I, I, it would be interesting to, if you could look at a history of that and see what, how did that look going back like 200 years or whatever, like any period really. Like this is something that's built up over time, but in Rembrandt's time, for example, was... I know, you're totally right. Like how is it going to hold up in 200 years? Well, yeah, that's not even so much what I mean, but that's a good point, too. Like, a lot of the stuff now is anybody can even care. Like, Rembrandt paintings are going to be doing whatever they can to keep them alive forever. I don't know that they'll be trying to keep Jeff Koons' basketballs in an aquarium going forever or not, right? You know, so I don't think so, but, yeah, no, you're right. But, but what I was really curious about was what were people paying relative to their own ability to pay for artwork back then. Like, who was... I guess back then art was probably very elite, right? Because... Oh, yeah. We're talking about yeah. the Medicis and yeah, big noble families been, with... It would have all been made for, the, for royalty, essentially. Well, first for royalty and then for big merchants. The biggest merchants. So in a way, that hasn't changed that much over the time, and when you think about it, it's like the real high-end stuff is still doing that, but now we've got this new thing where people are, like, more artisan sort of level stuff, where people are paying, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars for artwork from many people like yourself or, or whoever that can, you know, that makes the stuff at a at available price. Mm -hmm. Most people can't afford a million-dollar home, let alone a million-dollar painting, right? No. No. No, you're right. So it's uh, art has become more um, populous. Popular. I think it's just like everything has become more infiltrated throughout culture. I guess people's concerns at the time that Rembrandt were painting were probably quite different than ours are. And people were worried about like the fact that life expectancy was probably only like forty years old or something back then, right? Yeah. And there was, like, disease couldn't be cured. Like, there was just so many things going on that uh, uh, for working-class sort of people, I'm sure the last thing on their mind was, I could really use a nice painting on the wall over there. Yeah. They probably weren't thinking about that a whole lot. <laughs> in, no. 15, uh, in, in 1600. When was Rembrandt? He was, like, late mid-1800s? I don't even know. It's embarrassing. Uh, no, he would have been probably 1700s. Yeah, he's not 1800s. 1700s? I'm thinking 16... Yeah, yeah, 16. You're probably right. The Dutch yeah. masters were that long ago, weren't they? Yeah. Around there. 1606 to 1669. Hmm. There you go. So that's pretty cool. That's a mm. long time ago. Yeah. And I can't imagine that the guy who... Like, I can't imagine that average people at that time had any connection to art whatsoever. No, no. I wouldn't think so. Maybe to craft, but mm -hmm. not to not to like a Rembrandt painting. Like, where would they even see it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I Damn. imagine Rembrandt was fairly rich in his day. I imagine he got paid pretty well. And he probably had a whole army of people working for him, making, helping him make those paintings and doing the backgrounds and stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
I think I've heard that, yes. Some some people would be uh, good at draperies, others at uh, faces. No, actually, he would do the faces. I think that's what it is. He would probably finish them. If not, he, he might have some people block them in. I would guess that the final product would have to have his, like, see, he'd have to have the real important part of finishing it and making it look like one of his own because they all do look like that. And there's also, I mean, maybe we're getting off, off topic, but there's also that whole camera obscura thing where they were talking about a lot of these pieces, even back then being done with uh, visual projection techniques. Oh, this is so neat. Um, I have a friend who, well, from a long time ago, she's from London. She moved to Yukon and she just participated. Actually, I wanted us to um, get to interview this this person who is uh, running those those camera obscura um, workshops or That's festival, cool. whatever in in Yukon. And uh, yeah, they uh, people create all kinds of apparatus to. To, 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 to do that. Some some of them have a tent, others have built sort of structures with a roof, uh, and they they just bring that thing, that machine, anywhere they want to go and and yeah, they just trace. They trace the image. Yeah, well, the argument is that a lot of those people, even in the in going as far back as Rembrandt, that's what they were doing. They block in the major images, and that's how they look so photographically real. And it's it's a controversial thing because on the one hand, there's people that say, no, these guys were just geniuses, and they could just paint like that without having it. And then there's other people that say, no, they were just like modern-day artists, and they used the tools that were available to them. And that was, uh, what's his name? David, um, who was it? He wrote that book. Yeah, there was a whole, like, um, interesting... Oh goodness, I remember his name. Anyway, it's an. I think it's. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. So, um, I think we've talked for a long time, but that's good. <laughs> we no, we haven't the... we haven't uh, met for a long time, so we had to have a kind of a longer. <laughs> podcast get it off our chests we, we don't know when we're going to be able to do it again so i think I, I for me i think next week's good but we can talk about that offline okay okay so all right we're gonna say goodbye for now okay and it's, talk it's to you later pleasure. and we'll talk soon okay okay bye bye